Welcome to Oncopharma. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It is May 27th. Gosh, we're already at the end of May 2021. Uh, today, we're going to talk about amivantamab, a brand new, um, first of its kind, monoclonal antibody approved uh, for a subtype of non-small cell lung cancer. So let's just get right into it. Amivantamab, the brand name here is Ribravant. Uh, and this was FDA approved on May 21st. Uh, so amivantinib uh, is, as you can tell by the name, and it, it may be a monoclonal antibody. So uh, if you are going to uh, think of mo- monoclonal antibody, just you know, stand up and put your arms in the air. Uh, unless you're driving, keep your hands on the steering wheel. So most monoclonal antibodies we have, uh, you know, if you p- have your hands in the air right now, uh, you know, in most antibodies, the right hand and the left hand the the um, the FAB portions, the things that bind the target, are the same in, in really every monoclonal antibody we have approved. This is a little bit different. Uh, so the way they designed this study is kind of a, a, a modern miracle of biotechnology. Is the left hand side of the antibody is different from the right hand side. So, for example, the drug, uh, let's say cetuximab. Uh, the right hand and the left hand, again in the Y format of a monoclonal antibody holding up. In cetuximab, both the right hand and the left hand bind to epidermal growth factor receptor, EGFR. Amivantinib is different in that one of the arms binds to EGFR and the other arm binds to MET. So it's a bispecific growth factor inhibitor. And this FDA approval is for metastatic or advanced non-small cell lung cancer with exon 20 insertion mutations. Now, when we think of EGFR mutated, we kind of use that statement as a, as a blanket for this type of uh, non-small cell lung cancer. About 5% of people have these EGFR mutations. We really mean EGFR activating mutations. More specifically, we're talking about exon 19 deletions or this L858R mutation in exon 21. Uh, exon 20 insertion uh, alterations or mutations are generally not responsive to TKI therapy. There, there is like one very, very specific and rare type of an exon 20 insertion that may be susceptible to, to TKI therapy. Uh, but, but these are pretty rare and, and, you know, some reports say maybe make up half of all of the EGFR mutations we see. But when we talk about EGFR positive, so to speak, we're really talking about exon 19, exon 20 mutations that I just described. This is a different type of mutation. It's exon 20 insertion that this drug is approved for. Um, so, so that's kind of the drug, and we'll talk about the approval that, that got it to, to market. And as you know, or as you would guess, this is approval is an accelerated approval based on response rate in less than 100 patients, right? That's just the assumption these days going into it. So uh, we have 81 patients who had already received prior platinum-based chemotherapy. This is not first-line treatment for these folks. This is after they failed platinum-based chemo. Um, they got uh, this drug. Single arm study, looking at response rate. Overall response rate is 40%, uh, which is you know which is a reasonable response rate. If you look at uh, EGFR TKIs in the first line setting, you'll see response rates of 75 to 80%. Um, so in the second line setting, this is reasonable, a 40% response rate. But again, uh, no comparison to say Pemetrex had maintenance because uh, 95% of these folks had adenocarcinomas. Um, 46% had received prior immunotherapy. Typically, immunotherapy does not work for the exon 19, exon 21 mutations in EGFR, uh, unlike, say, in metastatic melanoma uh, that's BRF mutated where immunotherapy still works. 
still works pretty well. Uh, they actually identified some of these folks, uh, some of these exon 20 insertion mutations based on tissue biopsy and some from plasma, uh, like the circulating free tumor DNA, the so-called liquid biopsy. And in some of those liquid biopsies, they actually, uh, you know, they, they could not, um, uh, that they found the biopsy on tissue, they couldn't identify it uh, in the plasma. So if you just do the plasma, you might miss out on some of these, on some of these folks, uh, if you don't get the tissue biopsy to confirm this or find this exon 20 insertion. All right. So, you know, this will quickly become, you know, the, the recommendation category 2A therapy for folks with exon 20 insertion mutations who fail platinum-based therapy based on response rate. That's going to become the standard of care, whether that's uh, actually going to be warranted in the long run <clears throat> when hopefully we have a comparison study. Uh, but the, so the drug is going to be used, and there's some, some interesting stuff about the drug. So let's start with how the drug is given. It's given IV. However, it needs to be given via a peripheral line for the first two weeks. The dosing here is weekly for four weeks, then every other week thereafter. Presumably, the idea here in giving it weekly is you get to steady state faster, which the PI says will happen um, after like nine weeks or so, which seems to make sense, okay? Uh, now, just because you're getting to steady state doesn't mean you're getting to like the, the actual concentration on average in the blood that you need for efficacy. And even the PI says there, the pharmacodynamic, pharmacokinetic relationship has not been established. So we don't know how much drug you need for it to be effective based on the, the company's own package insert. Now, the reason that the peripheral line appears to be needed for weeks one and two is there's a high risk of infusion-related reactions. Like two-thirds of patients will have infusion reactions. In fact, the first dose is required to be split over days one and two, right? So you do the peripheral line for weeks one and two, and my guess here is, I don't come right out and say this, but my guess here is by giving it via peripheral line, you actually slow down how much the drug gets pumped out through all the body so quickly. Because if you go into a central line, you're going right into the superior vena cava, and that drug gets pumped everywhere in the body very quickly. So you have higher concentrations throughout the body faster. And we know for a lot of these infusion reactions with, with antibodies, so uh, that giving it slow and titrating the dose works pretty well. So that's what we do with... Uh, uh, with amivantamab, and we'll talk about that in a little bit greater detail. Uh, the dosing is fixed dosing based off of weight, so either uh, 1,050 milligrams, if you're less than 80 kilograms, which conveniently is three vials, uh, vials are, I guess, 350 milligrams, or 1,400 milligrams if you're above 80 kilograms. So, as I mentioned, you give it weekly for four weeks, uh, the first two weeks need to be via peripheral line per the PI, and then you can do a central line uh, going forward for weeks uh, three and four. Uh, does require pre-medication with acetaminophen, um, and an antihistamine, diphenhydramines recommended either IV or PO, uh, and then a, a corticosteroid is recommended um, for, for, uh, for week one, so the first dose had split over days one and two, and then if they have any issues, you can continue to give it with subsequent doses. Uh, for for mild to so grade one or two infusion reactions, you, you can stop the drug, reduce the infusion rate by half, and then restart, uh, and, and then include a corticosteroid going forward if they do have uh, an infusion reaction. Uh, the drug is stable for like 10 hours once diluted, for those of you that are pharmacists, so this is a make the day of sort of a thing. Um, the infusion rate, the way that it's split, right, so for week one, you're getting... Um, like a third of the dose basically on day one. And as a, at a slow rate, that's gonna take about four hours. And then the next dose will take uh, three hours. Uh, and the next dose will take two or three hours again on week two, and then two hours going forward. I think that's the way when I did the math, it's like the first dose is four hours, 
then three hours, then two hours as you tolerate it going forward. Um, <coughs> so uh, there, is a, there is a warning for infusion-related reactions occurred in two-thirds of patients. Um, and you know once you have that, you decrease the dose. So all those folks had some sort of modification pretty much to their infusion schedule. Uh, grade three and four reactions were pretty rare. Um, you know, we're talking, uh, you know, less than, uh, you know, less than a couple percent having severe reactions. So the infusion reactions with appropriate um, titration of the infusion rate, splitting the dose and with the pre-medication seems to be something that we're well aware of managing and we didn't get caught like rituximab and we didn't know how to do it initially. And, and some patients died uh, with their first dose of rituximab. Don't see that these days. Uh, Seems like with any drug that targets something or works for lung cancer, there's a risk of interstitial lung disease and pneumonitis. 3.3% of patients have seen this, as you might expect for anything that targets EGFR and potentially MET. Um, more EGFR, you see rash in three quarters of patients and other skin toxicities. Uh, there's instructions in the PI to limit sun exposure uh, during treatment and for two months afterwards and use a, you know, a non-irritating uh, a moisturizing lotion. Uh, you can see some ocular toxicity, uh, keratitis, dry eyes, uh, redness, blurred vision, uh, and that can occur in, uh, you know, in, in a few percent of patients. It's, it's uh, most of these were grade one and two, and those folks should be referred to an ophthalmologist. So those are kind of the serious things. Uh, other really common toxicities that occurred, which you would expect based on targeting EGFR, paronchia, so nail disorders in half of patients. Uh, musculoskeletal pain uh, in about half, a hemorrhage in 19, that's probably related to, to perhaps uh, to MET. Um, uh, diarrhea, 16%. Not all that common diarrhea, uh, maybe uh, perhaps surprisingly, but probably has to do with the fact that you're not going to be blocking EGFR a lot in the gut as a monoclonal antibody as opposed to a TKI. And then we see, you know, half of patients had increase in AST or ALT. Uh, makes sense because MET, the, one of the ligands for MET, uh, is a hepatocyte growth factor cell. Not surprising we'd have some hepatotoxicity, which we think of more as a toxicity of targeted tyrosine kinase inhibitors uh, versus our monoclonal antibodies. Um, one other thing I'll throw out there, I'm going to read here from the PI, I mentioned this before, exposure response relationship and time course of pharmacodynamic response has not been characterized. So I don't think they have a leg to stand on here, um, at least for what they published, for why you have to give it weekly for four weeks. You know, we don't typically do that for most antibodies, right? Maybe there's a loading dose, uh, which would be tough to do with a drug with a lot of infusion reactions, but like Pembronevo, you just give it every, every three weeks, every four weeks, whatever schedule you're using. Um, but the one thing that will happen if you do give the drug weekly for four weeks is you're going to get a lot more drug given and the company will make quite a bit more money. So uh, perhaps later we'll get some maybe more uh, some more cost-effective dosing of this drug uh, once we learn more about it. Um, so that is amivantinab. Um, you know, seems to be it's an interesting drug, if if nothing else, as a bispecific uh, monoclonal antibody that will bind to both MET uh, and EGFR, and it's approved for these exon 20 insertion mutations, as detected by an FDA-approved test. That's what I have for you uh, this week uh, on Oncofarm. Uh, next week, we, uh, we probably will be uh, right in the middle of, of, of some of the, the new stuff coming out from ASCO. I don't think the big stuff will be presented until the weekend. So in the next two weeks, probably be talking about updates from ASCO. Always an exciting time at Oncofarm, the podcast here. We have uh, cutting-edge research coming out uh, in presentations and abstract. Uh, form. So thank you for listening. Uh, you can follow me on uh, Twitter uh, at FarmDeetNib. You can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Oncofarm. 
uh, or on Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.